Atonement is probably Ian McEwan's most famous novel. It tells the story of Bryony Tallis, the 13-year-old daughter of a wealthy family in 1930s England. Bryony has a gift for writing and a vivid imagination to go along with it. For motives that are not fully clear, she invents a story that leads to an innocent man being convicted of rape. Robbie, the target of her tale, is the son of their housekeeper, and a brilliant young man who has just graduated from Cambridge. He's also in love with Bryony's older sister, Cecilia. But because of Bryony's story, the happy future that Robbie and Cecilia had envisioned is in tatters. He's thrown into prison, and Cecilia is estranged from her family. In 1939, they are both drawn into the war effort where they both die. By then, at the age of 18, Bryony has the maturity to fully appreciate the magnitude of her half-innocent mistake. And the novel is an exploration of her efforts to atone for her words and their impact. Words, innocent little utterances, can have devastating power. In McEwen's book, Two Lives Are Destroyed by Bryony's Words, and the rest of her life is shadowed by the consequences of those words. We're continuing our series on a letter written by James to early Christians spread across, across Asia Minor and Greece. In the section we will look at today, James reflects on the power of words. Here's what he wrote. Don't be in any rush to become a teacher, my friends. Teaching is highly responsible work. Teachers are held to the strictest standards, and none of us is perfectly qualified. We get it wrong nearly every time we open our mouths. If you could find someone whose speech was perfectly true, you'd have a perfect person in perfect control of their life. A bit in the mouth of a horse controls the whole horse. A small rudder on a huge ship in the hands of a skilled captain sets a course in the face of the strongest winds. A word out of your mouth may seem of no account, but it can accomplish nearly anything or destroy it. It only takes a spark, remember, to set off a forest fire. A careless or wrongly placed word out of your mouth can do that. By our speech, we can ruin the world, turn harmony into chaos, throw mud on a reputation, send the whole world up in smoke, and go up in smoke with it. Smoke right from the pit of hell. This is scary. You can tame a tiger, but you can't tame a tongue. It's never been done. The tongue runs wild, a wanton killer. With our tongues, we bless our God and Father. With the same tongues, we curse the very men and women he made in his image. Curses and blessings out of the same mouth. My friends, this can't go on. A spring doesn't gush 
fresh water one day and brackish the next, does it? Apple trees don't bear strawberries, do they? Raspberry bushes don't bear apples, do they? You're not going to dip into a polluted mud hole and get a cup of clear, cool water, are you? There's some pretty strong language here, language that can be even be off-putting at first. But let's look at the passage in its context and then dig into James's thoughts on our troublesome tongues. This portion follows directly after the verses that Aaron taught from last week. In some ways, that section was the pivot point of James's argument regarding faith and works, that the kind of faith that doesn't change our behavior is not what brings us into the life of the kingdom. He started that section writing, Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? He goes on to bluntly conclude that faith without works is dead. The faith that James wants to see in them is not a set of doctrinal statements that can be posted on the church wall or on a church website, not just a set of correct ideas that they have memorized. He is calling them to a faith that doesn't simply change what they think, the list of ideas that they hold about God, but needs to change how they think and, in turn, how they behave. It's more than just adding a bookshelf of God stuff to our mental library. Faith is a movement of our heart toward God, where our values and even our desires are being reshaped and brought into line with God's heart. And James says that kind of faith will also impact our words. James seems to be concerned that his readers underestimate the impact of their words. He uses the metaphors of a bit in the mouth of a horse or the rudder of a ship, small things with a big impact. He wants them to appreciate that their words are like that, seemingly small but very impactful. It's really easy to underestimate the power of words. Our brains, and now even our phones, can seemingly generate them on autopilot. And words have all the benefits of plausible deniability. I didn't say that, or I didn't mean anything by that, or best yet, make it the hearer's fault. I can't believe you took it that way, that's not what I meant. It may have been a throwaway line, but the impact can be lasting. We can toss them off without thinking, and can do that even more easily in a social media context where a few keystrokes can deliver the blow. I'm in the Campbellford area Facebook group. Recently, someone posted a question about which restaurant in town makes the best gluten-free pizza. There were a bunch of helpful comments, but someone replied, You're an idiot. You can't make good pizza without gluten. What do you do with something like that? It's not true, but that's hardly the point. It's the meanness and the arrogant dismissiveness of it that's shocking. Or maybe not shocking. It seems remarks of that sort are standard fare in social media. 
The anonymity apparently removes their need for any of the social graces, and the brevity of the format removes any nuances. Now, you may be quite confident that you wouldn't give someone that kind of a verbal smackdown, much less create a story that lands someone in jail like Bryony did in Ian McEwan's novel. But even so, our words can be impactful. We may think that James is being a bit over the top when he says that our words can ignite a fire that carries the very fumes of hell. I don't think that he is literally suggesting that when I speak thoughtlessly, the odor of burning sulfur fills the room. Nor that there is a literal fire, for that matter. Don't let the extreme language obscure the point that James is making. The fire is a metaphor for the potential of our words to be destructive. And I think the reference to hell may be a reference to the Satan, the spirit that is described in scriptures as both the accuser and as the father of all lies. Our words can be like that. They can carry accusations and untruths. The quip by my gluten-loving Facebook friend may be an example of both. What he says about gluten-free pizza isn't true, and he accuses the woman who posted the question of being an idiot. Of course, those who pride ourselves in being honest find more subtle ways of doing it. In close relationships, it's often the never and always statements. It is possible that I may have said to Edwin on occasion, why do you always leave your dirty clothes in a pile on the bedroom floor? I'm accusing him of making more work for me, and it wasn't true that he never put them in the laundry, or for that matter, that he never did the laundry. But, as the protagonist in an old spaghetti western movie might have said, them's fighting words. Words that I'm using to protect myself instead of communicating with love. To be clear, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have that conversation, but a more honest and less accusatory approach might be something like, I appreciate the stuff you're already doing to make the house run smoothly, but these next few weeks are really stressful for me at work, and I'm wondering if there's some way we could juggle tasks. Aaron mentioned that the Apostle Paul and James are often seen as pitted against each other in their writings with their emphasis on faith and works, respectively. But the importance of careful speech was clear to both of them. Paul writes to the young church at Colossae, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. Gracious and seasoned with salt. Salt's an interesting metaphor here. As a seasoning, it can be so important to enhance flavors. And of course, in biblical times, it was also a vital preservative. Good words, careful words, and gracious words can do both of those. They can enhance and preserve our relationships. But the salt metaphor also reminds us that too much of a good thing can be problematic. I'm reminded of a story from my university days. A dozen or so guys who were involved with the student ministry that I was part of decided to rent a frat house 
and hired me for a part-time job to cook dinner for them on weeknights. In mid-January, I got the flu and was off work for a number of days. When I came back on the next Monday, the entryway was stacked with pizza boxes, which suggested I probably had job security. But I was told that one of them, Don, had tried to cook one night. He had his mum's chili recipe, and he was sure he could make it. It called for half a cup of chili sauce. For those of you not familiar with that condiment, it's not a version of Frank's red hot sauce. It's a very mild, sweet tomato relish. Don couldn't find any chili sauce in the fridge, but he did find chili powder in the cupboard. Not quite half a cup, but he emptied the whole package into his concoction. I'm told it was served with a fire extinguisher in hand. Too much of a good thing, even a good thing, often isn't great. And that is true of words, too. Recall that in the first chapter of James's letter, he instructs his readers to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. After reminding his readers of the tremendous power of their words, James goes on to describe what their words reveal about the state of their hearts. Perhaps another litmus test. He writes, With our tongues we bless our God and Father. With the same tongues we curse the very men and women he made in his image. He uses the metaphor of fruit, that strawberries don't grow on apple trees. The fruit reveals the nature of the tree. Finding apples indicates that it's an apple tree. And in the same way, our words reveal the nature of our hearts. Even if we can sometimes pull off pious platitudes, the things we say to people and about people behind their backs suggest that those platitudes aren't reflective of what's really in our minds and hearts. In this line of thinking, James is clearly drawing on the teachings of Jesus. Jesus, who also emphasized the importance of judging our faith by the fruit it produces rather than the words we spout. Here's what he said after a particularly testy encounter with the Pharisees. You have minds like a snake pit. How do you suppose what you say is worth anything when you are so foul-minded? It's your heart, not the dictionary, that gives meaning to your words. A good person produces good deeds and words season after season. An evil person is a blight on the orchard. Words are powerful. Take them seriously. If you were following today's text closely, you may wonder if I'm bailing on talking about the very first verse where James offers strong caution about being a teacher in the church. He says, don't be in any rush to become a teacher, my friends. Teaching is highly responsible work. Teachers are held to the strictest standards and none of us is perfectly qualified. We get it wrong nearly every time we open our mouths. It's a very sobering text text, and I do take it seriously, particularly when I think about how some of us have been scarred by unhelpful teaching in the past. I am so grateful for the community hermeneutic that we practice here, that you can challenge, balance, and correct what I say in the Q&R or with a quiet word afterwards. 
I'm really grateful for that. As I look back over my past, though, I tend to think that this caution on teaching should not be restricted just to those of us behind the pulpit. For many years, I had the confidence and, frankly, arrogance to think that I had the answers for people. I could barely wait for people to finish telling me what was troubling them before I explained to them where they were wrong and what they needed to do differently. I cringe when I think back on some of those conversations. If we are parenting young kids, we do need to offer correction and instruction. It's an important part of the job. But in most other relationships, that's not what we are called to do. Someone recently pointed out to me that when we give unsolicited advice, we're actually passing judgment. And in that context, our well-meaning instruction isn't likely to produce the helpful results that we want. Three years ago, people who knew about my medical background would occasionally ask me what they could say to their friends to convince them to get vaccinated. If I were James, I might have cautioned them to be careful not to make themselves into a teacher. Their friend wasn't asking for advice, and they weren't in a position of having medical responsibility for the friend. What they did have a responsibility for, though, was to love their friend. And perhaps in the context of a loving and listening conversation, they might learn that the friend had a very good reason for not wanting to be vaccinated. I recently listened to a podcast on the Bible for Normal People where the guest was the author Brian McLaren. Some of you may know his books. The topic was when the Bible gets used as a weapon. I'll post the link on the Facebook feed because he gives some great examples of how to deal graciously and constructively with people who hold positions very different than ours and who vigorously defend them from the Bible. One practical thing he emphasizes is the importance of listening rather than speaking and of asking questions rather than jumping to judgment. They may hold a view that to you is so offensive your knee-jerk reaction is to think that only an idiot could think that. But a series of thoughtful and sincere questions from you can uncover the roots of their thinking and make it easier for you to love them, even if you don't end up agreeing with them. James wants us to appreciate how powerful and how destructive our words can be. A thoughtless or worse, a cruel remark, especially from someone we love and trust, can stick with us for a lifetime. But although James doesn't emphasize it, our words also can also be powerful for good, can provide encouragement that lasts for a lifetime, or can just make today a bit better. A number of years ago, I worked with a young woman named Rosetta. One thing I admired about her was her capacity for what I came to call good gossip. We'd be sitting around the lunch table and often the conversation would descend into complaints about other people and the stupid or unhelpful things that they had done. Rosetta would sit quietly and then when there was a lull in the conversation, she'd tell a story about something lovely that someone had done. Not a story about herself, or that brought credit to herself, just a positive story. 
she might have been in the grocery line where there was a senior ahead of her who was taking forever to fish the coins out of her wallet. If it were me, I'd be impatiently sighing and repeatedly checking my watch to see how late this was going to make me. But not Rosetta. She was waiting patiently and observing carefully. Carefully enough to see the cashier fish a coin out of her own pocket to complete the lady's payment. At lunch the next day, I would have had a grumpy story about an incompetent cashier, but Rosetta, whose habit of good gossip made her watchful for small kindnesses in life, had a lovely story, lovely words about a moment of helpfulness. Words, words that brought grace and fueled hope. And words that challenged the rest of us to find better words for ourselves.